Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Ono Sullivan, as it has been over the past 99 episodes. This is the 100th episode. It's with Stevie G, he's the special guest. When I was thinking about who I would want to have as the guest uh, on the 100th episode, because it is a milestone, you may as well try and mark it. I thought Stevie G would be great, just because he is one of the most energetic, enthusiastic people in Cork in Ireland and he's just kind of seen it all as well from uh, the donkey's ears on Union Quay through Sir, through the back bar of Sir Henry's through the Bodega and the Savoy up to the pavilion in 2008 through for about five years or so and uh, and just continuing to DJ and do his own thing and give a leg up to new acts and help them fulfill their visions. I just think Stevie is one of the one of the powers in court music. So it was great to talk to him uh, for just over an hour. We kind of talked about his journey. We talked about uh, his DJing skills and how his love of music kind of developed and his his first show, how that came about, right through to the present day and the venue situation in Cork, which sounds like it will always be something that we will discuss in another 100 episodes, in another 100 years. I think that venues in Cork will still be discussed. And no, we didn't even talk about the event center in the city. So it was a really, really interesting chat. Uh, stay tuned for that. Just from a personal standpoint, thanks to everyone who has listened to the podcast over the uh, last three and a bit years. Thanks to anyone who's been on the podcast and who I've interviewed over the past few years. Uh, I feel like I've really developed as an interviewer, which was one of the main goals uh, of the podcast at the outset, just to kind of get good at interviewing. So I feel like I've, I have kind of done that if I'm allowed to toot my own horn just a little bit. It started off with um, myself, Keelan and Ashling, who both were involved in the PAV and uh, then went off to do their own thing with Southern Hospitality Board and are still continuing in various guises, both musically and um, promotionally, I suppose, and festively with a quarter black party. Um, so, yeah, the first like 15 or so episodes are kind of uh, us discussing various things in the music world, wider field. And then they're, they're just two busy, busy people. So... Uh, after that, it kind of became just myself interviewing various acts and just developing that. And over the years, there have been some really, really great guests from the likes of Girl Band early on to Give a Man a Kick, two acts at kind of wildly different stages of their development, but both of whom I love talking to and both kind of gave yeah different aspects of uh, different perspectives on musical life and right through from just general discussions about cork and music through to very specific things there's been some author interviews over the years with the likes of um uh sarah baum kevin barry and danny denton earlier this year who released a great book there's been a couple of arts arts driven ones that aren't music based um, Aileen from Sample Studios stands out as a particular highlight and then just all of the music over the over the past couple of years. Um, Alvaretti last year I really enjoyed talking to her and seeing her rise continue. Or Orla Gartland just a couple of weeks ago was really great to talk with uh, um, Kathy Davey a couple of months ago 
there's there's lots there they're all up online and they're all free and there's no ads it's just straight up conversations so if you uh if you like your music maybe you'll like the point of everything I'm not going to say here's to another 100 episodes, but I will say thanks to my producer, Steve, from Tune, who's produced, who's, he's based in um, Sweden, in Malmo, and, or is it Copenhagen? I can't keep up. You know, these, these Irish people, once they go abroad and they move, and they move to different places, they just kind of keep on moving. Um, <laughs> so thanks to Steve, for, who produces the show and does a really, really great job of making it sound uh, semi-coherent, at least. And yeah, thanks to everyone who listened. And anyway, that's the end of my blathering. Uh, here's Stevie G and myself chatting on a wet September morning. Um, do you just want to talk into the mic there? One, two. Yeah. Check one, two. Cool. Um, so I was thinking for TPOE 100, you know, who would I get in as the guest? And I think that it's your uh, infectious energy, your uh, drive to kind of constantly promote Cork music. I was like, well, it has to be Stevie G, doesn't it? Wow, have I not been in there for one of these before? I don't think so, no. I know we did one in... Um, Related to something else that a few of us, I remember it was outside the Triscoll. I remember that. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely did one. It mightn't have been one of these though. It was outside the Triscoll and it was sunny. Yeah, very, well, very not like today. Yeah, it's the middle of September now. It's starting to get grey and it's uh, it's raining outside, so you might yeah. hear a little bit of those atmospherics. But like, uh, yeah, that's that's why uh, I wanted to get you. Like, I mean, do. You've been in the Cork scene, like, in one guise or another for, like, over 20, over 30 years? No, 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 no. I wouldn't over say 40 years? <laughs> no, uh, 25, we'll say. 25, yeah. Yeah. But, like, I mean, and, and you're still constantly, like, doing new things and uh, kind of challenging yourself as well. Like, is that is that something that you've always, like, sought to do in music? Like, you don't just kind of, oh, I'm not going to, I'm just going to say no to all these emails instead of saying yes. Yeah, well, I mean, I said no to plenty of emails or ignore. No, um, it's just what's interesting to you. I mean, anything with anything to do with any of the arts, whether it's the highest, the high high arts or the low arts that I'm involved in, it's just a matter of um, just keeping it interesting for yourself. And uh, that's the bottom line. I mean, it's, it's the same as a DJ or as a music producer or on radio, anything. I mean, I've got caught into a couple of long-term things over the years, and I think everything runs a cycle. I mean, back in the day when we had a couple of long club nights, which I was always, I really loved the idea of it. Um, but as years gone by, it's just not realistic anymore, unfortunately, because the venues are always changing. But I really like the idea of doing something long-term and building something week on week or whatever. Now it's completely changed now, but. It's also uh, an opportunity to just do different stuff. Um, unfortunately, um, I mean, some people like everything to stay the same. Like I see even yesterday, there was a, someone spread a fake rumor about the Savoy reopening and everyone's gone crazy for it. It was just someone had posted an article that Aoife had done um, on the journal in 2002 about the Savoy reopening then. And they posted the whole exact article about oh it's going to be fire eaters and amazing um bar staff and djs and someone just changed the date on it 
and it kind of went semi-viral in Cork and loads of people were like, oh my God, a Savoy is opening in October, it's going to be amazing, uh, we all need the Savoy back, but like, there's this whole kind of like um, desire for, for things to come back and and for things to like be like what they were or whatever, but I have no interest in that. Even though the Savoy was great, I spent 10 years there, it's like... I'm I'm realistic enough to know that that time has passed and the Savoy unfortunately will be shop snow or whatever it will be and that's the way it goes unfortunately there's a big history there and like the Rolling Stones played in the Savoy so it's a pity we couldn't culturally keep it but at the same time it's just the way it is same with Sir Henry same with where, wherever else uh, there's a lot, lots of iconic venues I was actually passing the Arcadia the other day and I only noticed all the the things in the ground from all the show bands, they they put this these slabs of um, it's like the the Hollywood tribute where people put their hands, and they had all the show bands who used to play up in the the Arcadia, which was way before my time, but was uh, a legendary uh, venue. Uh, I actually played at the end of it. We did a, a hip hop thing up there with Prime Time and the Southern Soul and Disco Festival. I DJed up there with a skate jam or whatever, but in in its time, it was like known as like a place for bands. And ironically, in the real heyday, for what I would say, from what I've stood, uh, learned from older people in Cork, was the late 70s, early 80s, where there all the brilliant bands up there, the specials, the beat. Obviously, you too, a lot of their first gigs, and they always talk about it. But all the, the pavings up there were, were of show bands, which I thought was, was great, like for them, but... I was like, how come you're not putting up non-attacks <laughs> or like all the, 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 the brilliant Cork bands who've actually pretty much been ignored, like Five Go Down to the Sea and all that. They haven't really been given their wider um, acknowledgement by the establishment, we'll say. Whereas there was these pavings of the Dixies and all these who are, are obviously very important in the show band era, but that's not really my, wasn't really my scene. But, but, but I was just thinking that like, that's apartments now, which was a great venue, um, but it's just the way it is. You just have to move on. Luckily, there's enough iconic places that are still open, like, and there's still a good lot of venues at the moment, and it seems to be on the upward curve again, whereas I once say there about three years ago, everything seemed to be closing down. There seems to be one or two opening now again, and I'm sure we'll see what happens. Do, like That seems like you've come to terms with it, you know, you don't get too like gutted about a venue closing or something like that. Is does that just go back to like say Henry's closing or something in your yeah. life? You know what's done is done. Yeah, because we walked out of Sir Henry's in two thousand and one, and then it was closed for me. I never went back in there. Unfortunately, it was where I used to have my um. At the time, there was a lot of um vinyl promos being sent, and it used to be my mailing address because it's always better to have a hotel as a mailing address than than an apartment where you could be living for six months. So. I still had mountains of records coming in there for a couple of years. And in fairness, um, some of the staff in there used to contact me and get them to me. Like, But I never even walked into the place since. And um, it was gone for me. So it's for me, it's not a physical... Um, like, like <laughs> people can talk about Sir Henry's, but it was like more or less... I mean, for want of a better word, a kip. But it was cool. It was, it was our kip, obviously. But it was... It, it wasn't anything to do with a physical space really that much for me. It was just a time and a place and a people and a music, whether it was rock music, whether it was before our time, all the the bands they had way back in the 80s uh, when it was more like 
modelled on the Hard Rock Cafe, which it was modelled on originally. Uh, I think they were even selling loads of food in there or whatever. But um, but in our time, it was like a, a live music venue and a dance music venue. And my room was the back bar, a legendary room or whatever. But like, I don't really have any kind of emotional attachment. Like when it was gone, it was gone. And it was two years later that they knocked the place after we left. But I didn't really have any... You know, I didn't never. I never even thought about it. Didn't care about it. I know there's people going and taking bricks and stuff and keeping them, but that's cool as well. Fair enough, and it is historical. But for me, it was just a, it was just a, a building, really. When you left there, though, did you were you going straight into somewhere else? Like, was the um, bodega up and running? Well, there was like already that? tension in the air because the Savoy had opened with a big. Of course, 2002. So, yeah, it was even earlier. The Savoy had already opened and there was already... I got caught in the crossfire a bit because um, we were doing this Saturday and Sir Henry's freak scene was the Friday and Sweat was doing also... They were doing another version of it on Thursday, which had always been the tradition. But my main one would have been the Saturday and Henry's in the back bar. And then when the Savoy opened, there was a bit of tension because... Greg and Shane didn't move as of yet to do... They were doing the big Saturday in Henry's. I was doing doing it as well in the other room. But I, sir, I they asked me to do a couple of the Fridays in the Savoy. And I just agreed, you know. I mean, like, Sir Henry's weren't paying me enough to... Like, this is how I make my living. I have to be working on Fridays and Saturdays. So I, I agreed to do a couple of Fridays, which are totally different because they were doing freak scenes still in, in Sir Henry's. And... There was a bit of a dis- disagreement because they were like, oh, you have to just play here. And I was like, look, I got caught into that before a couple of times. And I was like, look, this is like Cork is small, but like I have to be working, you know, like I have to if I'm doing something different in the Savoy, I'm not losing all the opportunity to DJ before so all these brilliant acts that the Savoy are going to be bringing. Because Henry's was never really about in the dance scene. It was about some guest DJs, but it was never really about guest acts. Um, They had them. Uh, in my room and in the bigger room. But in the electronic house, dance, hip-hop scene, it was never guest-driven. It was always about the residents. And then we'd have one or two DJs that we liked, uh, like Kerry Chandler or whoever, Kevin Yost, uh, Harry, uh, DJ Deep, people like that. And in my room, it would be some friends of mine, like Mickey D, who's a guy from New Zealand who'd lived here. Um, there was uh, the Firing Squad from London, but, but Mark Ray from Grand Central. But... It was always about the residents, so but the Savoy had a different approach because they were about to come and fill the gap, um, which at the time was there wasn't really the big acts weren't coming to Cork because there hadn't been the venue as well. Like even though Sir Henry's was probably suitable for it, it just wasn't going to invest in that kind of. And Joe Kelly, who had was spearheading the Savoy from the Cork end, was always very ambitious, and he changed it, changed the game in in Cork in the 90s anyway, but he came with a lot of ambition to do the Savoy as the proper thing, which he did as well, in fairness. So suddenly the Savoy were having Gil Scott Heron, uh, Run DMC, uh, Mercury Rev, um, whoever else, all the hip-hop acts, and people who I never dreamed would come to Cork were suddenly playing in the Savoy. So I had a bit of tension with Henry's and we more or less came to blows. And But there was, o- there was other stuff too, because we were always seeing how busy the place was and we always felt that we didn't really want a glamorous club, you know, but we wanted the bathrooms to work and stuff like that. 
And then it all came to a head then one November, uh, November 2001. We had just had the birthday party and there was one night where Carrie Chandler was the guest and there was like 3,000 people outside and they changed the price from like 10 euro to like 20 or something on the spot. I don't even know if euros were around then. They probably were. But um, they more or less just like did it kind of pull a bit of a a sly one on the crowd. And for for us, it was always about the crowd because they were the people who always wore the, the club. Even more so than the music, it was the crowd. And we just felt that that was too far. And we all agreed to, myself, Greg and Shane agreed to just just shake hands and move on. And we told them. And then Freak Scene did the same. And that was that. Now, Henry's was knocked a couple of years later. It was always, the writing was on the wall anyway. But for, for me, that was that. Game over. We had the Savoy lined up. Okay, fair enough. But there was times I have done that kind of thing where there was nothing lined up. And the Savoy era was pretty good in, in many regards. Again, I'm not nostalgic for it either because it was it was probably mismanaged in later years. There were so many different owners. And again, the venue probably needed that little bit more of just someone to come in with that extra investment on the sound and and the bigger picture but again it's like it's easy for me to say I, i've 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 been involved in running a venue too much smaller but it is um but i suppose you probably need a lot more capital and and just i think you need more people um more big hitters behind you to really succeed in this thing some of the people who have succeeded over the years are still doing it like like there's cypress avenue that whole area there's obviously all the reardon's area there's benny's places so there's still people doing it and there's there's different venues but a lots of them are have got the sometimes it might take the welly of the the more commercial place like for example cypress avenue have the old oak the reardon's ones well they're more more or less all commercial anyway but um uh, benny would have even, even though his have always been more niche i suppose so he's had more uniqueness in, in different ones but I think it might. Um, it, it 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 it's very hard to just do something isolated in Cork. But uh, people will try, and I'm sure someone will uh, is going to succeed doing it as well. But at least there's a few more options coming on board now in 2018. Yeah, I, I guess like those spaces that you're talking about are quite big, like the Savoy and Sir Henry's and stuff, and that kind of seems that what isn't really there in kind of. Uh, dance dj circles in cork in 2018 is it yeah like i don't i don't really think dance needs a huge venue i know like church we're kind of doing it you can still stick seven or eight hundred people in there i know it's changed its name now and put on whatever big host dj but like there's not a huge need for it there is a need for a thousand venue savoy size for big acts like for bigger to me like what have we got? We got the City Hall, which is very hard to run a gig in because the, the window is very small and there's no bars and you have to bring everything in from the cloakroom. Uh, you got the Opera House, which is a tiny window when you stick in pantos and summer season plays or sorry, summer season shows and all the other things. But I mean, fantastic venue when you can do it. Like, I mean, taking out the seats is another matter, which costs a fortune. And it's very um, it's small window for booking. But I, I suppose... Like a Savoy size would be great, but it would need um it would need to be working like like for example, you can't afford to do last time it ended up just being a club. I was playing there on Saturday nights actually, and it was brilliant, like but like you can't afford to just have a venue operating on that, have a club night every Saturday, maybe a DJ 
a guest DJ on a Friday, the odd act, like that's not economical. You need to be turning a venue. Like you look at the examples of the ones who do it, like the Academy in Dublin, a bit smaller, but they're turning that over all the time. Like it's open practically every night, two shows a night. Could be kids shows, could be big guest acts from all over the world, could be local club nights. That's the model. I mean, obviously there's a lot more people living in Dublin, but um, you would think that there would be um, um, a kind of um, an appetite for that in Cork too, but the right venue and the right people and the right place is, and there's people trying to do it at least. Like, I mean, Cypress Avenue would have be pretty close to that. The Crane more, I suppose it's more kind of like local acts or whatever. Uh, where else have you got? Dali, who's stepping in and doing the club stuff and the PAV, and I'm sure they're going to try to do more uh, live stuff too. So there's there's people trying to do it anyway, at least. Yeah, that was what I was just going to ask you. Like, were you happy to see the PAV reopen as Dali? Yeah, absolutely, because like, I've done a couple of gigs in there now, and the guys in there uh, know what they're doing, Like, and they also um, uh, are, are kind of like looking at their own specialist zone and building from that which is good, like, they're not just going in trying to do everything straight away because you, we all have our own little areas of expertise and for them it's electronic stuff and that's what they're basically using um, as a springboard at the moment and they're kind of building it out from that and trying one or two more things as they go on. But it's a smashing space. I mean, I mentioned about not caring about Henry's, but if someone went in and ripped down the path, I'd be a bit upset, like, with the upstairs uh, because it's it's an important building, like so and stuff like that. I mean, Henry's was too, but it wasn't physically important. The Savoy would would be, to be honest, uh, to a certain extent, and the Pav certainly. That roof is amazing in there, so it's a great venue. Um, the people who were in previously to them, after us, <laughs> they wrecked the bar, which was a cool bar. That that was Joe again. Joe had a brilliant vision on that bar, and it was one of my favorite bars in town. I know it's biased, but I used to love going in there even in the daytime. So that's a pity that that went. And no, but at least now that's successful as a ramen or something. So people will complain about whatever, but I'm like, if there's something open, it's better than nothing, you know, than board it up. I mean, it's a great street, so the more yeah. the better. Uh, so so let's talk about your journey up to like all of this that uh, you're doing now. Like um, when just from various people mostly joe i suppose who i've talked to over the years like it's always like starts out at the donkey's ears is where you got your yeah kind of break yeah exactly because we, we were kids so to speak because you can get into a pub when you're 16 easily then you know so for us it was just the music um, like 80, 80 oh no 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 that was i was younger than that no i'm much younger than that so we were um so in school or whatever, we were hearing the tapes and we're here. Like we knew about the, like I would have been into hip hop, got really into it when I was 14 or 15. It would have been there and thereabouts growing up as a kid in the 80s. Like we knew about breakdancing. There was a breakdancing scene in Cork big time in mid 80s. And some of the older kids that we knew were breakdancing and we knew about it, but it was like the BMX thing or the yo-yos or whatever. It was just a thing that, like, it was a fad, but everyone suddenly got into it. Now, people got into the music. That's was in uh, across Ireland. There's a lot of um, breakdance crews, and even in Cork, there was some of them, and there was a graph scene. So the hip-hop culture, which is breakdancing, graph, DJing, MCing and stuff, 
would have started in Ireland pretty much around then, you know. I mean, you could make an argument that it's always been there uh, if you want to go back and talk about the music, but we'll get into that another time. Um, but there's, like, the, we'll say, like, the likes of Christy Moore or whatever, There's a lot, it's a lot closer to rap than than what... Um, than, than what some kind of like big artists would be in in other countries, but anyway, the scene was there when we were growing up. But and I knew stuff like Run DMC and whatever, but it wasn't really till the um, when we were kids at the end of the eighties that like I heard NWA and Public Enemy and Della Soul and all that that we really went like crazy because it would have been rock and punk would have been my main thing as a teenager. But when this whole the whole thing changed, we got into hip hop. We were still young to go, too young to go out, and we heard of Henry's, which was playing dance. And the first underage club I went into was a great club, and it's a pity it's still not open, even though they've had the rights. I think Voodoo own it for years. Is um, Reds, brilliant club. Um, it's just been on sale for like years and years and yeah, years. Yeah, I think they, I think it's it's bought, but there's some problems with neighbours and all sorts of stuff next to the church. But it was an amazing venue. I think there's fire problems too because it's quite tight going up the stairs. But that was the first place we got into as kids when we were like 15 and all the stuff that was out in the charts at the time was like the Della Souls and there was dance music like Technotronic, even stuff like commercial stuff like MC Hammer. But it was exciting for us to to go out and to hear this stuff. And to be honest, if you're that age, no matter what you hear in a venue, you're just so you're you're so delighted to be getting in. And it wasn't an alcohol thing for us. It was just being out like, you know the possibilities of being young and a teenager but we'd always heard of Henry's and I think I got in there first when I was about 16 so it would have been around the turn of um would have been about 1991 or something I don't know but we were definitely going in there for a couple of years and we used to all go in there and some of my friends we used to get on the back bar as well so there was a DJ called Donkey Man and it was just so exotic like it was so dark there was this light it's just that people used to just push back and forth to the rhythm. And the rhythms were very much reggae and a bit of hip-hop, dancehall reggae and hip-hop and dub. And I was just fell in love with the place. Now, I used to love going up to the front to see Greg and Shane because they were just hitting their stride then. Like, they'd been in there for a few years. Um, but me and my friends used to often go down the back, and I was mad into because I was into reggae like from being younger and lots of the big rock bands I was into were reggae based like the Clash and Stiff Little Fingers have that um, reggae undercurrent um, to them so that was a big thing and then he'd we'd beg him for hip hop because that's what like Public Enemy and all that were at their peak and we were I was begging Donkey Man and he used to have a rollie in his mouth all the time and he, he I was like how come you're not playing more Public Enemy and he was like you know I don't like the guitars and I was like I, I thought I at the at the time I was like, how come he doesn't like pop? But I I didn't. Uh, it was only years later I kind of understood that like he's from such a dub reggae vibe that it's more the Public Enemy thing was probably more rock orientated for him. But he was into so much amazing soulful stuff and hip hop. And when he used to do his little hip hop section, this is the time Dr. Trey came out with the Chronic and stuff and this stuff in a club and a good sound system was just amazing but we were in there all the time and I, I'd already been buying records for years since I was like practically 10 years of age so I was very young and never thought of DJing or whatever but in the meantime I had done a DJ competition which my friend just asked me to do and I was just laughing at it 
or no, we'd done something in UCC. Um, when I went to UCC, um, a bunch of us just used, a bunch of people used to just bring records and they had a DJ set up in the very back of the old bar on a Friday and Colin Moreardon said, look, bring some records. And I said, look, I'm not a DJ. And he said, look, you like music, just bring records, like, you know. So then we just played them and then there was a DJ competition around the same time. My friend Mahan Fitzgerald asked me to enter in the donkeys. And I said, look, I can't DJ. And he said, look, just do it. Like, you've got good music. Um, we'll all come. And I won the, the first round. All my friends came in. It was a hip-hop set. And Michelle from the donkeys then was like, oh, geez, he's got a bit of a crowd and I like his music. So she was, like, trying to get me a night there. So then the next time, um, then within a couple of weeks... This is all my first year of college. Uh, Donkey Man, who was the DJ in the back bar, who I was like um, the big fan of, um, it's his family business, the Donkey's Ears. So that's, that's the Donkey connection. So Donkey Man was from the Donkey's Ears. His parents owned it and he ran it with his sister, or his sister ran it, Michelle. Uh, but Donkey Man was the Sir Henry's back bar DJ. And suddenly he couldn't make it one night and I got a call at like, um, I was in the donkey's ears having a drink just in college and they were like, can you play in Sir Henry's tonight? And I was like, oh, 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 like, and they're like, well, Mark is sick, donkey man is sick. Can you just get some records and play like, you know, like just go to the door at 11 o'clock. And I said, like, it's 10 now I, or whatever is nine. I just legged it home on the bus, grabbed a bunch of records, legged it in. And next thing I was playing in Sir Henry's and um, to cut a long story short, that was that. Like, there was no turning back after that. Like, there was only, like, five people there in my room. Every, like, even the people I brought in with me went up the front. But it didn't matter. It was like I was in. Like, you know, I got yeah. my break, you know. Lit the spark. Um, d has vinyl DJing in particular uh, changed much much over the years? Like, from that first gig where you've got... Oh, yeah. Records? I mean, absolutely. I mean, no. If that was no... You could have probably went in. I wouldn't have had to get the bus home to Grange and the bus back in. I mean, you probably could have had a USB stick on here. Like. Yeah. But, but actually, vinyl DJing in particular, like... Oh, no, it's the exact same. If you're just using vinyl, it's the exact same. It's two turns. Now, I didn't know how to wire the decks back then or anything. Yeah. Uh, I didn't even... I don't think I even had headphones. Um, I didn't know... I didn't know how to... I was queuing on the... I'd look at... I'd put the record on and guess where it was and just play press play so there was probably oh, I wasn't mixing or anything not a chance like but vinyl DJing um or any DJing it's two turntables and a mixer and that's it like I mean people can intellectualize and philosophy or whatever sorry they can do whatever they want about DJing but that that's all it is is just the only reason there's another turntable there in general is to just smooth the transition so you don't have to take the record off and put it on and leave another 10 seconds gap. But the bottom line is you're playing a record or whatever, CD, whatever it is, and then you stop it and you play another one. I mean, obviously, if you're mixing, you keep them both playing and blah, blah, blah. But, like, people lose sight of the fact that it's quite a simple thing. Now, the first time I used decks up in UCC or in Donkey's Ears or even in Henry's, I was just so into the, the idea that, like, you could just keep this flowing. Once I got to use headphones and even once I started the mixing, I just loved the idea that you didn't have to go have a 10-second gap where you're flicking around and <laughs> looking for the next record and cueing it and all that. So for me, the flow is just like... and when I Because I, mean, I had already been 
knowledgeable about that from growing up watching, particularly Shane Johnson and Greg, like, DJing up the front because they were already mixing, like, you know. So we, I, well, I couldn't even get my head around that. I was like, how the hell does this happen? I was like, this was like watching, like, scientific, like, 2050... Um, like stuff like it was just amazing i couldn't understand how they did that and before i started mixing i used to, have to actually go up the front behind the dj and often be watching shane and greg just djing i could just watch them i was just like how is this happening like i was watching it going like i couldn't even understand it in my head and i'd already been trying to do that at home and then i was i'd asked a couple of people but nothing worked but eventually i had a pair of decks at home and old techniques, they weren't the proper ones. And I eventually made the the breakthrough one night by the way I cued it. Like I learned how to count in the beat. Not even count it, but I learned to drop it in on the on the offbeat. Or sorry, on I actually did it on the snare, even though I should have been doing it on the kick. And I actually got it one night myself. And that was just like that was revolutionary. Then now my mixing never really was good for another year or two, but uh, that was a big thing for me as well then because I love the idea of just for if more from a flow perspective most people from a hip-hop background it's scratching but that never I even realized at an early age that like, I'm not the most technically proficient person in the world so I realized at an early age like even when I was 18 or 19 I knew I wasn't going to be a scratch DJ or whatever because I was like Do you know what there's guys who've been there since they're 12 just scratching like like when I was like watching soccer matches or whatever these guys would be spending three hours in their room scratching and and i was like i like a bit of scratching and stuff but it's a bit like the guitar for me you know it's like i don't need too much of it like i prefer the groove or whatever then i don't want to hear a guitar solo for three minutes and i don't want to hear scratching so i respected it as part of the culture but i also knew look there's certain there's certain people who are good at this that's their thing. My thing would be more on the, the smoothness and the, the transition is what, what always interested me more. Um, like you, uh, you kind of alluded to it earlier, kind of like that there have always kind of been celebrity DJs and and stuff like that. But like, have you been surprised just like in the past couple of years, the kind of the rise of the superstar DJs, just that there's such a there's still such a big crowd for oh, these like names. The big names. Yeah. I mean, we had that in the... We always used to laugh at it. At the end of the 90s, it, it, DJing became such a big thing and super clubs and all that. Um, so DJs that we knew, like we were all doing gigs with, I was doing gigs with Fat Boy Slim in the early 90s, playing to like 200 people, like, you know, like up in Galway and Jazz Juice and play, well, it was probably a bit more than 200 people. But these guys were playing arenas by the end of the, no, the whole English super club thing. And that's why, we talked about the Savoy earlier. That's why the Savoy kind of came in at the tail end of that. And it was great for live acts. But even the big DJing thing, it was kind of played out by the end of the, by the turn of the millennium for me. And even though there was always legs in it and there always will be to a certain extent, it never really, like I'd much prefer, like Fat Boy Slim's actually a brilliant music producer or whatever, um, brilliant musical knowledge. But I'd much prefer to see Fat Boy Slim DJing in a in a room this size or in a bar or something or wherever than playing these huge like like I've done big big gigs of thousands of people too and you're just like you're um how do you say you're playing the percentage game like you know what I mean but like for a DJ it doesn't really interest me like if if you're doing a big festival like Fat Boy Slim you're just playing to the masses and that's fine but 
it didn't really uh it didn't really ever interest me as a as a musical person no it's cool watching someone i've seen dead mouse and all these people it's cool watching people put on the show like you know and to see how people can do it like i've seen diplo do it i i have a lot of respect for him major laser they're doing this show like and i've tried to particularly as time has gone on look at my own thing that's why when we do festivals i'm working with which we'll probably talk about like a dance crew and stuff and just bringing that in because like who wants to look at a guy like my age or like i'm not a guy who jumps around or do you know what i mean i i'm not a kind of like i'm not also not a turntablist like i just said so i don't scratch so it's not like you can just watch me like i'm just mixing it's not exactly the most exciting thing to watch so it's a lot better watching dancers break dancers mcs visuals whatever so but the celeb i mean there's celebrity djing and there's big djing like like fat boy slim and all that are actually djs and there's obviously like there's someone from love islands probably the like anyone can dj i mean we are but i did mention earlier that it's literally just pressing one song putting on the other so i wouldn't be so precious to think that other people who can't do it because as i said earlier i was already playing a sir henry's and i couldn't even use headphones so i'm not gonna go knocking like if anyone likes music and that's what it all that's the main thing about djing for me as well it's nothing to do with the format or anything it's to do with music and that's all it is to most people in the crowd i i think that that was kind of the thing that i was trying to get at i suppose just like should you even see the dj does it even matter like what's happening on stage like mm. the music is the music and like that's all that matters that like there shouldn't be phones on the dance floor people shouldn't be yeah. videoing the stage I, I totally like i see like the phone thing particularly now every day on, I, I see it actually on facebook and twitter people giving out about phones but they're giving out about it on Facebook and Twitter too, which is ironic. I don't care about that. Like, as far as I'm concerned, it's like football matches. I know we are an event-driven place now, and it's it's a whole different world. Now, obviously, I grew up in a place where there was no phones or whatever, and people could say it was better, and it probably was in some ways. But as far as I'm concerned, it's young people, mainly young people, who are enjoying themselves. And I, I honestly don't care. Like, I've been out and... Like, I mess around with my phone and I take pictures of the, Like, I document stuff. That's what I, I look at myself as a musical historian, too. So, I've often been filming gigs or film. No, I wouldn't do. I, I don't see any point in filming like a whole song or anything, but I'd get 15 seconds of a, a, a DJ or a show or a singer or a rapper. And I don't like see any. Like, I'm putting that up to promote that elsewhere. And it's actually like 600 people could see that on my Instagram story. So, I'm promoting this artist now it could be a big artist it could be someone that no one knows so i actually think it's cool now obviously if the phone is on for an hour you're kind of going like what's this is a bit weird but i do think that um people have got a little bit um a little bit precious about that whole thing no it's an easy it's an easy target as well it's like saying football was much better back then um in this in the 70s and 80s when we grew up or the 90s and and, like, if you actually look back at the videos, like, you see the guys on the pitch, like, and loads of them were, like, beer bellies. And, no, it's fine. Like, you know, we play football ourselves. But, like, these guys are professionals. And, like, I personally think that you can't really knock the fact that these guys who are there now, guys and girls, are playing at a level that's, like, it's phenomenal. Like, so, like, people can have the nostalgia for what things were, but, like, it's the same as we mentioned Sir Henry's nostalgia and like people will remember this whole thing where there was no phones and it was brilliant and the music and that's all people cared about. But like I, I do remember DJing and 
like having stuff coming in the roof, which some people thought was water, but it was, we were under the bathrooms. And, <laughs> no. and I was like, you know what? Like people can always be a bit nostalgic about a <laughs> lot of good things, but there was a lot of bad things too. And social media has had a lot of brilliant things regards to the music too. And I do think you mentioned about DJs being hidden away. That was one thing that backfired on me heavily was I was always of that opinion because the DJ shouldn't be seen. Like in Sir Henry's, I always found it difficult to DJ in the front arena, but the DJ was far away from the crowd. They were elevated, um, but you couldn't really see them so much. Um, I liked the back room because I was right next to the crowd, and that's the way I always preferred it. But when we opened the PAV in 2007 or 2008, it was, um, we had the DJ back in the corner, and the theory was you couldn't really see the DJ, and then we had the stage and the band, and it'd be all smooth, and we had the DJ box set up all the time, but, like, we realised that after a couple of months, that, like, it, that was my whole theory, shouldn't have to look at the DJ, DJ shouldn't be doing this or whatever, uh, who cares, it's all about the music, but the bottom line is, people kind of wanted a bit of a focus, and for DJ nights, it ended up being a bit of a failure, and Greg and Shane, and myself, and whoever else was DJing there at the time, we all soon realised you have to bring the DJ out a little bit, not so people can, like, worship the dj or anything it was nothing to do with that it was just people wanted a bit of a focus like like i don't care where people i don't even look at people really i just look at a kind of a when i'm djing i look at a kind of um to see i don't really look at faces i try to look at the the volume to see if i'm doing an okay job or whatever but uh, i don't focus in on i, I just usually keep my eyes on the decks or else the the, the volume but uh, so that backfired on me because it ended up being a bit of a fail. My whole theory of, oh, don't have the DJ in focus. And in the end, people were a bit lost. Like, so, and as, as it, I've totally flipped the script on that as the years have gone on then, because my thing is people do like to focus on stuff and the show is more like the music is really important, but I'm trying to bring the show more. That's why I mentioned we work with dance groups and that's why visuals are more important if people can have kind of the facilities to do that so because it's totally changed back then in the 90s it was a dj and the music and but it is totally changed now so for whatever reason for better or for worse you have to to stand out now you have to kind of bring a bit of a show like whether it's just a show of 30 years of great music from greg and shane uh, house music and their stuff stands on their own and brilliant mixing and smooth transitions and just history that seeps from every track uh for me it's more whoever i bring and the variety of music i bring and the kind of styles um for more um how do you say um scratch djs or whatever it could be more like what they're doing with their hands or whatever in the records um and for for other techno DJs, it could be the skills. For some people, it could be the way they dance around behind the decks. I mean, people will knock it, but like each to their own. Like I can't do it, but I'm sure Fat Boy Slim waving his hands in the air and his Hawaiian shirt and his shades and a couple of fireworks. People love that. Like, and I've seen brilliant shows that people do well. Like Diplo does it well. Brilliant showman. Some people rock the mic pretty well. I use it sporadically. Uh, so there's different ways, you know. Uh, did you head to New York around that time as well? Like around like the... I spent the summer, um, that was a big change. We had spent the summer of uh, just we were in college 
um, 94 in the States, in Providence and Ro- Rhode Island, actually. So I was staying in a kind of a place, Newport, which is like Kinsale. So it was a bit like, I thought I was going to go over to, be, I thought I was going to be like in Brooklyn or somewhere, and I ended up in, in more or less a Kinsale. And a Kinsale is a good music town, but it wasn't what I was looking for. So I couldn't even find proper record shops. So I saved money while I was over there, and I, I just fell in love with um this radio station, Kicks 106. And this was an amazing summer for hip-hop. Like, Dr. Trey and Snoop had already, like, Snoop's debut had come out. So Nas Wu-Tang had released their seminal stuff. Biggie, it was Biggie's big summer. And the big one for me was the likes of SWV, Aaliyah. She was only, I mean, Aaliyah must have been 14 that summer. But they all broke through that summer. Uh, Biggie's debut, as I say, Nas's debut, this is all happened at the same time. And I was listening to this on the radio, working in some whatever, washing dishes, listening to the radio, going, Jesus, I'm in America. And I was totally, I, I thought my DJing had already started, but I thought I was going to be forgotten about when I went back to Cork. And I was really frustrated because I couldn't, um, I bought a few records in the local shop, but it was a bit crap. And I was getting really frustrated because I actually had money because I was just working all the, all the time over there. But I couldn't get the records and I was really frustrated that I was missing back home because it was a brilliant summer back home. The World Cup had been on and and things had been really just started. Henry's had got to another level. They'd started these weekenders. So I was getting really frustrated. And then I got the bus up to Providence, which is the kind of big urban city in um in Rhode Island. And I never forget that day. It was really hot. I had loads of money in my pocket, which I should, probably shouldn't have. And I just started walking and I was, wa- I must have walked for about, I'm not messing you, like five, five kilometers, um, five kilometers. And I eventually, um, I was looking for, and I was finding all these shops, like uh, Spanish shops, which were not even selling vinyl. One or two of them were, but it was Latin stuff, which I wasn't into at the time. I didn't know anything about it. But I was looking for hip hop and I eventually came out the other side and got into like it was pretty much um a black urban area and i eventually found a shop called uh one stop records and i went in and the guys were looking at me going like what are you doing in here like and um there was some of them laughing um behind the counter and uh are the guys buying records for and then i, I just minded my own business and eventually was in there for about two hours and put up a stack of records in the counter I said, look, I'll take these. And then the guy kind of, he, he actually knew then that I wasn't like, you know, just like, just a messer, like, because he knew by the records I was buying. And then we became friends, that guy, the DJ, Curly Cut. And he ended up, look, like, giving me his own copies of stuff. He was, he was the same, and ironically, he was the same guy I'd been listening to on the radio, even though it was like, um, it was just uh, by chance. And his, this guy had like Wu-Tang on his show and Biggie and Craig Mack, all these guys all summer so I, I went up to him every couple of weeks buying stuff for the rest of that summer and when I came home I knew then this was like particularly the R&B thing because I'd been into Mary J Blige and stuff like that but I really saw that summer in the States how that was because the hip-hop was becoming a bit too macho in many ways it was just becoming all like people grabbing their crotches like so to speak because the gangster rap thing had kind of come and gone and then people were just like it was just becoming a bit like there was some brilliant stuff there, but it was changing. There was a lot of hip hop that was getting a bit too stale. 
but the R&B had the same music and had a more feminine vibe. And when I came home, I never forget going home, doing my first gig in Sir Henry's, saying, I'm going to just rip the place apart. And I remember clearing the floor so badly, like, because yeah. it just, they weren't ready for it. Like, especially because I've been playing, it was a more feminine style. And all my friends were like, what, why are you playing this girly stuff for? Like, and I, I used to clear the floor. I'll never forget some of the records that cleared the floor, the biggest records ever to be in Cork. Um, even a couple of years later, like Warren G. Regulate, I cleared the floor with that. Juicy by Biggie. No one, everyone was like, what's this like? Um, so that was a bit of an eye opener, but I just stuck it out. And in a couple of months, by a couple of months later, we changed the dynamic of the room I was in and I got the residency back and it was very much a, a girl-driven thing for a couple of years, like 75% girls on the floor. And as much as some people didn't like it, I knew that that was the way to to make make it bigger, like, you know, make it better because just hip-hop all night to the States, it's a bit boring unless you've got a bit of a different style to it, in my opinion. Were you tempted to stay in New York? Nah. I Maybe. wasn't in New York anyway. It was near enough. Or, sorry, yeah. No, no, no. I, I like. I just like. I'm. I don't know for whatever reason. I just. I like Harris. The pace is good for me. You know. I had a couple of good opportunities, not to go to the states, but certainly to go to the UK at the time. One extra was launching, but it actually ended up being the same time as Red FM was launching. So it was just for me. It was just one extra probably would have been a better career move, and I was definitely ready for it because. A couple of people in England were actually approached me about it, including um, one of the guys steering it. But uh, I said, oh, I just I never thought twice about it. Some of my friends were giving out to me, all right, but I just prefer to make it happen here, you know. Was um, Henry's kind of the only place in kind of the the nineties in Excuse me. Cork? Like, was, no. were there other places you're? No, playing? there was the Yum Yum Club, which is good for house music, electronic. Never heard of that. It Yum was Yum up Yum in Nancy Club. Spain's, which is a great venue. Um, but it was more, more their club nights were more dancey. But it was, I mean, Nancy's a great venue. I used to DJ in the pub there the odd time. Uh, but the big one would have been, for my point of view, would have been Garby's, which was an ex-legendary soul boy from the UK, Paul Murphy, who'd fallen into some situations, let's say, and ended up coming over here and opening an urban clothes shop, very like primetime. And then... He had been kind of burnt by the industry. But this guy was the most influential. This is the guy who influenced Giles Peterson now, for example, in the UK as a DJ. And he's still around. He's living in Eastern Europe now, friend of mine. But Paul came over here and then he ended up doing a little bit of DJing. Now, this guy could do anything in his sleep. Like he knew what was happening in music. So he did this night in Gorby's, uh, which is the voodoo now. Mixing up um, all the classic funk and soul, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, uh, with all the contemporary hip-hop, all the down-the-line stuff like that was big, like, say, Austria, House of Pain, Cypress Hill, um, and one or two other bits, like there might be a bit of acid jazz or whatever. It was never really a house thing, but he'd have maybe one or two reggae things, even a bit of prodigy and stuff. And Rage Against the Machine was a big one. So he, he had the perfect like, combination of almost like if you played a wedding tomorrow, you could play the set he played then and it would rock the place. So the, it was it was like hip hop, but not too hip hop. Like stuff that people liked, like Arrested Development, for example. 
everyone like that, even if you're not into hip hop, is accessible enough. But but he he was such a brilliant DJ. He wasn't like a mixer or anything, but he was so technically or not technically, but his, as a selector, he was just like this guy's like he's one of the best DJs you'll ever see. Like you know, like his background is jazz and funk and soul and stuff, particularly jazz jazz dance. He's the pioneer for that. So he he could do this in his sleep, and he was doing this. I filled in for him a couple of times. They actually banned in Garby's. They banned. Um, Killing in the name of it was so our bullet in the head. No, killing in the name of yeah. by Rage Against Machine because people used mosh so hard to it. Like, but that was the big one, and it was a bit more of a mainstream crowd or whatever. Because uh, some people just look like you should look at Henry's as like who are the people who used going there? Like, so they used to look at it as being like a, a drug. Then even though me and my friends never did any of that, so we were just like, then people would go in there who are into the music, and then they'd realize. And there's people from all backgrounds going in there. But Garby's is probably more mainstream thing. There was more students going in there. But he used to run that. There was other nights then. So Joe Kelly and Dennis, who ended up taking, like, he'd be now known for Liberty Grill, Gusto and stuff. Back then he had, uh, he obviously did electric and all that. But back then, him and Joe started some club nights in Hysteria, which is down by the Pav now. It's not even existing. It's probably the back of that club, uh, Mangan's. I think it was around that area, that building. I think there's some uh, franchise in there. What's it called? Weatherspoons. But um, they ran a night called Rubber Dolly, and then it was really cool. The flyers, like it was like um, an Adidas Ram. Uh, it's really kind of cool because people were didn't really take the flyer thing too seriously till then. There was a few people doing it, like in Sir Henry's, but not 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 so much. But then they did a night called More Disco, which which was um, a cool idea, brilliant idea, but they did it in the most unfashionable place. What's now the Oliver Plunkett, which was then called Norma Jeans, Zoe's. It was like a real 80s club, but like a kind of club that none of us would have went in there. And they, The only night they could get was a Tuesday. So this night was, um, uh, I suppose you could call it a disco revival thing, and this was way before. I mean, disco revival has been done a million times now, but the French house music was just coming out doing it and the time was right. Uh, so this was like, it's always good to do a revival 20 years after. So this is basically mid 90s, 20 years after disco started. And it was cool. Like again, the first night there was only 50 people there, but it was myself and the DJ Angie who had, he's much older than me, but he'd come from the kind of like, there was a underground gay scene in Cork over the years and Angie would have been, one of the DJs would have been known we didn't even know each other. We were literally set up to play at this night. Um, and we we went to his apartment, uh, his flat, and listened to records together and we hit it off. And we ended up becoming a DJ partnership there for four years. That was legendary. It was a Tuesday night. And originally it started off as more or less a gay night. But then loads of girls used to go and then loads of guys followed, obviously. But it was just, even my friends were like, like loads of them were like, what's this like that's a gay night we can't go there but like it just became this night that like it was quite especially when you think of 20 years ago in Cork the climate was different you know I mean in Ireland as a whole like obviously the marriage referendum has changed things but like stuff was only like stuff was still outlawed in the early 90s when it comes to like the underground gay scene and stuff like things just completely changed 
then on the strength of that they opened up the Badiga in 1995 96 and they and they always had some big club places they had the half moon where we did Yolotino and they also did Telefunken which is a massive night at the end of the 90s in the metropole once a month big acts big DJs they did the Southern Soul and Disco Festival uh, the rest of the things then would have been the, the mainstream places like Gorby's would have been by and large mainstream uh, what other places would there have been like all the Reardon's and all them started around that time um, let me see what are the other like there's loads of other and there was loads of like underground scenes like a drum and bass scene jungle scene uh, obviously there was always the rock thing um, freak scene was big um so there was other there was loads of other things and loads of other venues it wasn't just um sir henry's and particularly lots of cooler bars came like the bodega was the first super pub isobar actually which is in now in the mardic was probably the first really kind of like state-of-the-art like the pod in dublin bar um then the bodega and that sort of changed things you know and it was also the first time that our generation were opening, like Primetime had already been opened, Joe and Dennis were doing things, we all started, even us DJs, we started running nights, one or two of us started like making music, running labels, but there was loads of people, like there's a shop called Religion, which is um, La Soul, it was also called, there was a, a girls, really fashionable clothes shop, there was Zoot, there was all people of our friends had shops, like there was Riddle with Gorgeous, second hand shop, so it was the first time people started like, younger people in their early 20s taking over things, independent businesses, supporting stuff. So it, it was a big change because the big back backdrop to this was when, when we were kids, everyone just wanted to get out of Cork. Like, you know, everyone's like, let's go to London. All the bands in the 80s, they all wanted to move to London, most of them to make it. Uh, you mentioned the States. It was a bit like that, you know. But this was the first time that people were like, oh, let's, we can make it happen here. And I was even going up to Limerick and places like that, DJing at the time. And everyone's like, oh, I'd love to move to Cork. And previously, we were all like, people in Cork, when we were kids, wanted to go to Dublin. But now it was like, people actually wanted to come down. So people did come down from Limerick and Galway to Cork. And we kind of, we were really like, Cork is a pretty confident place anyway. But it hadn't been like that in the... When, when I was a kid or whatever, it's like, because we'd, we'd been hit badly by the, the motor industry shutting down here, so to speak. Not like Detroit, but it was still Dunlop and Ford were big. So there was that kind of like feeling. It was like Liverpool or somewhere that had been left for dead, we'll say, by the government. So you you had that kind of um, backdrop, but it suddenly definitely changed and there was the swagger was in there in the, the mid-90s. So I do think that that was, um, that was something that... Um, that kind of like uh, really changed things. So for me, it was never a thought of going away. I was actually preferred being Cork than being in the States. And and just kind of like the final piece of looking back, like do you look back with fondness on the pavilion and everything yeah. you did there? The main thing for me was it re-energized me seeing, meeting all the new bands and artists and people we worked with. I mean, I remember the first night I was in there um, when we, we had a soft opening, so to speak, people a couple of people drinking pints and i think keelan was cleaning up our glasses or something and shane was in there and these were all the guys who ended up becoming the main staples of from djs to sound engineers to musicians to bands so it was all the people everyone who was working in there ended up being either in a band or a dj or running nights so 
that for me was a big thing. It's like that whole thing about the Velvet Underground, like that 30 people bought their first album, but everyone became like uh, whatever, uh, an artist themselves. And so it was very much like that. And when I saw all these, like, I mean, we could host whoever, O Emperor, Altered Hours or whoever. And for me, like, it was a tough time because it was a financial disaster. And my kid, my daughter was just born. And I also more or less um, had some other tricky situations in work and stuff, in other work. And I had to suddenly stop doing all the DJing around the country for a couple of years. So that kind of... um, that that was tricky for my own profile then because you get less gigs and you can't do them because if you stop you just stop you know you're gone like um but for me it was very tricky but and the sleep thing was just a disaster because i was in there all the time but it ended up becoming um even the worst nights i'd be so frustrated i remember driving home and i'd always end up being the one who wasn't drinking so i'd be the last person to drop someone home and i'd be like sitting in the car talking to someone about how tough it was and it was five in the morning and I should have just went home like you'd be talking to someone but there was always that moment no matter how crap the night was that you'd seen someone or an artist or a band or a DJ and you were just like you know what this is why we do it like uh so it was great in in that regard and we really um we really made a good good impact in the bigger picture but obviously I mean, from a black and white issue, it probably was a failure in some degrees, you know, and like we're paying for it still. Like, you know, it's not like it's these things are uh, they do cost money, but it was just unfortunate timing too, you know, opening a business, signing for something in November 2007 or whatever, opening in 2008. I mean, this was just like even in that six months, the whole uh, economic uh, world had crashed by the time we opened the doors and we were already uh, firefighting even at day one by the time we stabilized it then it was probably too late but you know we did it, we did it and I got out of it young enough to to be able to 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 still do stuff so I'm happy with that did you feel a little loss after it or did you feel like right I'm gonna go like no it was dump, an opportunity for me no because I should have I always was when I was doing stuff always best was when I didn't have all my eggs in one basket and I, I actually felt tied to it and it was brilliant, but being tied too much, to, and I was also tied to my Red FM show full time at the time as well. So I was very tied down for like four or five years. Um, just became a dad as well. So I I ended up becoming a bit freer, to be honest, after it. In the longer term, that is. But it was obviously when you go from being um, having two jobs to no jobs overnight, which more or less happened in 2014, I was kind of, there was a little moment or two, but to be honest, like I'm lucky enough, if I have my health, I can always DJ. So I, I was pretty much proactive straight away and a couple of people started calling me straight away. So I ended up just going forward and moving on, you know. And so what are you working on now? It sounds like it's a it's a really big show, like sounds like it was great at electric picnic yeah we we've got that like we started working i i met um a girl that i thought was kind of known a little bit in cork from coming to the club nights but i became very friendly with uh, andrea williams about two years ago her husband tiago and we started doing some club nights together and bringing in her element because i'm i'm fascinated about like the best thing for me 
in the last 20 years, like, because we, we used to do it back in the 90s when there was dance hall reggae nights, me and Bellyman used to do it in Henry's. And it was always the night where there could be like, there's probably 30 black people living in Cork at the time, but like, like 15 of them would have been at the night, you know what I mean? It, it was always like the music places are where the multiculturalism gathers. And as time went on in the Savoy, this was, there was a time in the 90s where like I knew every black person in Cork, like, you know what I mean? Like, and two of them were like the professionals who were basketball players with Neptune. Like this was like, we've undergone a complete uh, change of dynamic in, in the city in the last 25 years. And obviously I've embraced it. Like, um, and when our nights, our club nights, because things change, you know, certain people get older and they don't go to clubs anymore. And our club night developed, my jam night developed into Taboo, which is um, which is a collaboration between a couple of other promoters that I was friendly with. We were always talking about doing stuff, but we decided to put it all in the melting pot. So out of that became a whole new scene, a whole new people. And then we started doing some stuff, particularly in the Bodega when we were there for a few months. It didn't last long. But uh, Andrea and myself started collaborating and she'd have some dancers with her. And they were just doing some stuff like they were dancing in there. But it was like a background thing. Like our, they were dancing actually <laughs> above the door as you come in the Bodega. But it looked cool because the Bodega, when, it, when it's popping, is an amazing place. And then when we finished up there, we decided to take it further. Uh, we started, first of all, we started doing these classes because we were always like, she was like, can you mix this for my routine for the, at a gig? And then it was like, let's do a class. And we just did a, a dance class, like, which is what she does. It's a fitness class. But having the live DJ really brought a cool element to it. Like it made it much more spontaneously. And people liked it because it was almost like a club. You wouldn't even notice, but you're, you're getting a workout for like 90 minutes. Well, I'm just DJing, but they're all getting a workout. But it was really fun for me because... You're just seeing the people react to the music. It's just like being in a club. Uh, so we started developing that idea called Dance It Up. And also at the same time, we started taking our um, club gigs more seriously, doing routines. And she did the outfits and she had a, a bit of a crew and more or less developed a crew, which subsequently are called, called Hot Sauce, but they didn't even have a name at the time. We just call it the Andrea Williams Dancers. And then... Um, I decided to ask Townlands for a go and they gave us a gig in the main stage, like more or less with me asking them. So they had the vision because they're into that dance hall reggae and Afro vibe. And then within a couple of weeks, Dawn from the Electric Picnic said, she just rang us and said, we have a slot finishing the Electric Picnic here or doing a gig on a Saturday night. Would you be up for it? And I was like, yeah. So they just did that within all a couple of months. And they really like the work that they do on the dancing front. No, I mix the music and we tighten it up to, to the second. It's like a so it's a cool thing. It's like being in a studio for me, but we do a lot of it spontaneously, then off the cuff, and it just brings a, a quite a show. Like because I do think from a cultural point of view, we're trying to bring the dance. It's just such like this is African dance. Like not all the people are African. It's multicultural. There's people from Korea, from Spain, from Italy, from France from all around the world, from Sweden, uh, but there's Afri African girls, African origin, whatever, In but it's very much a kind of like um, 
for me, it's just a kind of, how do you say it? Like, there's a modern Afro beat sound, which is different than the original Fela Kuti Afro beat. But the bottom line is, it all comes from Africa. It's all primal. It's it's just amazing watching the music with the dance. And I used to love, as a DJ in a club, watching like like all the, the girls and guys who who are coming from different places in Africa or elsewhere, uh, even the Jamaicans, when it came to the dance hall, uh, just watching the the moves and the styles and and then I'd react and I knew certain things had certain dances and you'd play it and there's an Afro house scene from South Africa one of our DJs Cheddar specialises in that and it's just mad seeing the the different sections of the world in Cork in a nightclub going crazy to certain bits and we brought that basically to uh, we brought it to a, a live show um, which which is um, again it's just I mean it's not like to change the world or anything but it's just exciting so we've been, i've just enjoyed that journey and it's it's something that but we, we, it's we're going to spread spread it out like it was very afro driven and uh, jamaican kind of driven and we're trying to spread it into different because we're all into like jazz and soul and we always have a hip-hop element too because that's my background but um we're just trying to develop it into something a bit more more theatrical like we did something with makia there at the Knockestock and, and it spontaneously became a mad thing and the girls are doing something in the circus festival, the circus factory next week and we've just been doing some more different things and to see how it develops but it, I still do my own DJing on the side as well like as just me because you can't just bring, it's not for everyone either like you know but it is good for certain things. Uh, just a couple of last like quick hit questions like what acts in uh, Cork are exciting you at the moment? Um, there's quite a good, always a good hip hop thing bubbling, right? There's people like Spec Fiction. I've been doing it for years. I was working with Jay Ronick last year. No, there's a little bit of a thing going on with him and some of the other rappers. They're doing a little because it's 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 the thing in hip hop at the moment where the beef thing is back. Like, and there's a few of them taking shots at each other, which I think it's almost like it's more or less a friendly thing, but it's a cool way of hyping things up. But it's a good way of getting the spark. But I always think the biggest problem in Cork. Now, GMC has done it, um, Spec has done it, but it's just getting the stuff out there, like putting it out, getting releases down, like something you can play people like. Because the best rappers in Cork, we were only speaking about it last night on Twitter, the the best ones who came up through my gigs were like Boney, Be Wonder, Bukaldana, and lots of them never really released much, you know. Actually, Boney's got a cool release with Calabanks, which is really exciting at the moment. I'd love to see more female MCs. I know there's one or two of them doing their thing. Um, there's brilliant pr- producers, though. Like, I mean, Jar Jar Jr., there's people coming up with stuff there at the moment that's just, like, mind-blowing. So that's what's really exciting me on the hip-hop kind of thing. Uh, there's another singer which I'm going to be probably working with um there's a couple of people i worked with over the last couple of years some of it worked out some of it didn't uh i'm trying to do my own like we've our own soul jams label we've a new release that isn't above that which is our project we've a new release on that coming soon which you'll be hearing about uh, i'm trying to do more with above that but we've had difficulty trying to get the time to do stuff together we've already got a couple of tracks lined up working with different singers and, and mcs one american couple of singers from here uh other exciting stuff jesus i can't even think i love some of the the younger bands like happy alone love those guys love the swagger and the attitude they're one of my favorites um but there's always and there's always the 
the brilliant ones that we all know, like I mentioned Altered Hours, like what these guys have been doing, incredible. Um, so there's just loads, I can't even think to be honest, there's loads uh, of stuff. And and what about like the wider rap and hip hop uh, world in 2018? Like, yeah. Like I know that you were talking in your uh, Echo column about um, Mac Miller a couple of weeks ago after yeah. he died, like saying how great. He yeah, was. he like in fairness, he was just a guy like he would have been dismissed as just your geeky white white college rapper, and to be honest, he was anything but. And I just thought, like to be honest, I think it's a little bit unfortunate because I just think he was finding his swag, or not his swag, but he was finding his feet. And his last album was really good. And I do think by the time he was thirty, like he was only twenty six when he died, I think he could have been coming up with some amazing stuff. No, he he still was, and he was always working. Like he was working with one of my friends, Dan Funk who most of the American guys wouldn't really, like, be hip to, like, but he's just, he's just, he he was quite good. But to be honest, what, what I do think is the big thing, like, my favourite guys have always been Ross and Gano in Ireland. I love the way that the Diffusion Lab in Dublin have really brought out, actually, I should have mentioned him, because he's from Cork, no one really talks about him down here, though, is Rushes, which is Sean Walsh, who, he was up on my radio show when he was about 15, but he's developed... He's mad like Frank, Frank, he's into Frank Ocean and stuff. He's like developed this mad electronic soul. It's on Diffusion Lab, um, who've also got soul There's Erica Cody, who I've done some work with. And um, there's some brilliant stuff happening in Dublin now. And the Afro-Irish kind of thing, it, there's like an Afro trap vibe and, and there's also some Afro beats, which I thought that scene would blow up quicker, but it's been a bit slower than I expected, but it is going to blow up worldwide in a big way, and there's some good Irish people positioned to do that, particularly in Dublin, where they seem to have it more on lockdown. Like, like there's more people in Cork are pretty good on the profiles and the social media, but I do think one or two of them need to record more. Now, there is the producers here now, um, but I do think there's, like, the Fusion Lab are almost like a little, little mini Motown, like... They're, they're they're doing their thing like and it's 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 amazing to see that they've got all the aspects covered and it's the, like we cannot we all know that like it's the one thing having music and stuff but actually getting it down and getting it really like these guys are industry connected already they're they're all over spotify already they're they're getting the things in motion so it's that's a good inspiration for other people because they're doing it independently um so in the wider scale of things then we've got Irish things like Kojak is one of the best things in the country in a long time. Their whole crew and there's other people on Luca Pam and and uh, Kean from that group are are breaking through and they're going breaking England. I know that for a fact. Um, there's some announcements coming in that regard soon. Uh, Versatile are obviously big, and Mango Matman there's loads. So hip hop is just better than it's ever been. There's more. There's people interested in like like unbelievably so. Um, and in the wider scale, then I'd be really into like lots of modern African stuff, lots of the stuff that's even some of the Afro stuff that's moved to London and places like just the Mister Easy and all that kind of scene is really good. Uh, Yemi Alad from um, some of the some of the stuff from Africa itself, and some from from a hip hop perspective then, and soul. There's some really good. Um, like I was delighted to see SZA make a massive breakthrough in the last few years. Um, who else? Love producers like Katrinada. They're always doing it. Um, obviously, all the big rappers like Kendrick. My favorite album of the year is probably by Travis Scott. Um, 
uh, what's her name, uh, Tiana Taylor and the Kanye West label, the Kids See Ghost thing, him and Kid Cody. So there's loads. I mean, again, it's hard to on the spot, but there's always stuff like there's always new stuff every every day. And finally, finally, uh, the soccer question, Manchester United, how do you think the season is going to go? Cork City, is it? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> um, it's actually been difficult because I've got Cork City and Man United have both had a couple of bad weeks, even though Man United actually won a few games in a row for the first time. Uh, but Man United are a bit short still, but uh, we'll see what happens there. And I hope Cork City can kind of make a recovery and win the cup at least, because that will be three cups in a row. Um, but And I hope that I'll be fit and playing again, because my ribs are sore today. So. Cool. Um, yeah, that's it, man. I 100. That's everything. 100. Congratulations. Uh, thanks a lot. Who are the other 99? <laughs> well, Can you remember well, well the first like 15 are like I'll uh, do, I'll Keelan and you. Ashling. Yeah. Uh, well, I definitely did something with you. It was for the quarter block party. I'm pretty sure they were involved in it. It mightn't have been this, but I'm sure it was, man. Yeah, it definitely wasn't for the podcast. You definitely haven't been on the, okay. on the podcast before. Can you yeah, name I'm, the other 99? <laughs> what was your highlight, Owen? Uh, I, really I know enjoyed, you don't like to look back. I really enjoyed talking to uh, Dan Walsh just because like, he's a font of knowledge. Yeah. you know, And he's the guy who's been behind about a million things, but some people don't know him. But we all know him, you know. Yeah, that everyone, way. everyone making music in Cork knows who Dan Walsh is. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to Paddy Hanna earlier this year yeah. as well. He's made one of my favorite Irish albums of the year, and cool. he was really honest. Like it takes a while, like you know, doing interviews and stuff. It takes a while to kind of get the uh, yeah. get the rhythm of it going. Yeah. But then once once you do, that's why I like doing long interviews because yeah, you, can you know over fifteen in. minutes, you're just hitting. You know, yeah. like oh, uh, you don't want to be looking this, at the clock, like yeah, yeah. But it's y- like once you go for forty five minutes or something, you know, people relax back into yeah it should be like you're having a coffee with someone or you're in the pub or whatever like i remember when i was doing mainstream radio interviews i was just sometimes i was actually just thinking about my question i wasn't even listening to the like i was just so caught up in the whole um so conscious about everything but Mm. as years went on when i started talking to people as natural like it still it takes years that's why if you hear broadcasters who've been on for years like it could be pat kenny or terry wogan i know like these people who like it almost like you don't notice that they're it's like a referee in a match you don't notice them they're just keeping it but like when you're conscious of it you're just like oh, oh, oh. i've actually you're talking over i remember talking over people i'm probably doing to you now but like talking over people not even getting their their point it's actually it's so hard to do, and the people who can actually do it, you, you actually respect. But it takes a while, and experience, I think, is the big one, to just leave it, just be natural, like, you know? Yeah, that's that's one of the main reasons why I started doing this kind of interview-based podcast, just yeah. because I remember interviewing Connor, Connor from Villagers, who's yeah, one of my yeah. favorite musicians. Legend, yeah. Um, it was for the, for the newspaper, but I just thought I, I did a bad job, and I was like, geez... How do I get good at interviews? The only way you mm. get good at something is to keep doing it and yeah. kind of have a breakthrough. Well, it's, hard. Through, it's, not. it's hard, particularly on the phone. I had a nightmare one time to live. Who was I interviewing? Like, you only got a couple of minutes, especially with the bigger people sometimes. I was interviewing uh, Jadel Monet, like, who I kind of totally worshipped for years. And at the time I interviewed her, it was her, before her first gig in the Savoy. And I, I'd say about... Like she wasn't even that well known or whatever, but I've been following her since she was working with Outcast back in the day, and I was a total fanboy interview. So <laughs> I remember my first question was like, because you're trying to tell her that you know a lot about her, and you're trying to kind of, but I, whatever she heard it wrong, like, and I was uh, my first question was like, listen, some people would would 
are calling you like an overnight sensation but you're anything but you've been here for years and i just thought it was a standard thing like that she was gonna go yeah like I've, I've been working when i was 17 i was doing this which i knew like you know so i set that up for her but she looked she she took it the wrong way and she was like well i'm not i'm not like that at all like you know it's like some people may say that but like what do they know and i'm like so it took me another couple of questions to kind of bring her back on my side till she actually realized that i wasn't like I think she'd actually misheard my question. Right, yeah. And she'd yeah. been really like, oh, I was like, oh my God. And I was DJing before her in the Savoy. But she was cool, like, totally cool at the end of it. But I was just like, I was like, geez, don't tell me Janelle Monet's going killing me here in my own interview. <laughs> like, what do you think of her new album? Yeah, I love it, man. Yeah. I, I love Janelle Monet. Like, I'm a big fan, you know. She's an artist who's just doing her artistic thing. Like, some of it isn't like, to, for me all all the time but ima- imagine being able to like every three or four years release an album which is totally ambitious to even have people like listening to it or following her but like people will you have to stick it out like it happened with Solange as well like you know they tried to bring her as a like a like little mini Beyonce when she first came out and the industry sucked it up but like she went off did her own thing and slowly eventually people will catch up but like having the opportunity to still be there and she still has a label support or whatever like that could change overnight but like there's millions of other people like um who get dropped like that like but Janelle Monet is built up even apart from her music she's built up a following now and she's earned it and she's gonna only get better so I just think it's like we'd all it's what we all love you know being able to be an artist like you know she's she's doing it with her own vision and being interesting and what more can you ask for yeah, well, that that's what you're doing uh, this weekend, heading off to uh, Italy and yeah. all, all your travels and everything. Listen, uh, thanks a lot for doing the interview. Thank you, Owen, and keep up the good work. Here's to another thousand at least. <laughs> a thousand, I guess.